So I want to start today with kind of a sad story. There's a guy named, by the name of Mark. I knew Mark years ago when I was up in Nuevo. He was in my youth group growing up. And uh, Mark came from a really troubled home. His dad was an alcoholic, and there was, I think, violence in the home, and a lot of issues in Mark's life. Mark came to our youth group. I believe Mark, I really believe Mark got, Mark got saved. It's hard to say. Uh, but Mark was really involved in the youth ministry there uh, at the church, and he helped me out a lot with things. He seemed to be growing in his faith. Uh, came to realize eventually that Mark had a problem. He was a pathological liar. So was he saved or not? You never know. He had a, the ability to really lie, and I mean, he was a good liar. And he combined that with other things as time went on. I remember the time that he was at his best friend's house. I think they were just out of school at the time, maybe, and uh, he stole his best friend's uh, dad's checkbook, went to a car dealer and bought a car. <laughs> That's how good of a liar he was. And, of course, it caught up with him the next day. It always caught up with him. And he has a, he had a history for years. And I had lost touch with Mark, really. We were in Wisconsin years later. I hadn't even thought of Mark for years. I get a phone call one day, and this Mark had stumbled into the Berean church over in Mesquite, one of our sister churches, and was... I think maybe struggling at the time, maybe suicidal, and he was sharing his story with the pastor there, um, which was, would have been Dan Reed's father. We know Dan Reed. His dad was there. And uh, he was sharing the story, and he mentioned my name. And so he put two and two together and found me in Wisconsin and called me up and said, hey, what do you know about Mark? And uh, we talked a little bit. Mark left there. Um, I ran into somebody else at one time that uh, a few years back that had known Mark through the youth ministry and and she had a story about Mark, and it was a sad situation. I found him on Facebook about five years ago. I just felt the, I don't know, I just kind of looked around Facebook and found him, and he didn't seem to have any spiritual interest. seemed like he had a job, and maybe he'd kind of got his act together a little bit. He had been in and out of, I think, jail for a while. Well, I got a call Friday night from my brother, and somebody in the way had messaged him and said, hey, you know, Mark had cancer. And uh, so we talked a while, and he was scrolling around at the time and actually found out that Mark died that very day on Friday of cancer. And I thought of Mark's life. I thought of his story. I hoped that Mark was saved. I asked the question, well, Lord, was I supposed to maybe get in contact with him a few years back when he crossed my mind? At the time, I felt like I wasn't supposed to really get involved with him because I just didn't know how much you could really trust him. But uh, it was a sad story. And, and I thought about Mark, and I thought about, you know, the reality is that I think Mark was saved, but um, you, 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 you wonder when you look at somebody like Mark and say, well, they're saved and they have no spiritual desires or interests. What happened? Were they really saved? And I think it, it's what we talked about the last couple of weeks. It's where we set our mind. And if you just continually think like the old man that you were before you were saved, you just eventually forget that I'm a new man in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And so the promise from God is he will never leave us or forsake us. The promise from God is that he will never unadopt us or kick us out of the family. The, the promise from God is that we're not saved by, based on our behavior. He may not have looked like a Christian. He may not, not have looked like somebody from God's family. But I think if he was authentically saved, he was. But what was missing in Mark's life the last several a couple of decades, uh, would have been the power of the gospel. He was missing the power of the gospel, and I want to talk about that today and what the power of the gospel looks like in your life, in my life. We've been in this series now for several weeks talking about uh, being Easter people, people <clears throat> who, 
who don't celebrate <clears throat> the resurrection one day out of the year, but we live every day as people of resurrection. And we said that the, that the cross is something to believe and the empty tomb is something to receive. Mainly, I receive the identity of Christ and I receive the power of the resurrection. And I can live within that reality uh, the rest of my life. Here's some verses that Mark needed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And look at this next one, something really unique in here I want you to see. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And, and there's something unique in that last verse that we all need to notice there. It is the reality that that verse is in the present tense. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there's this reality that the gospel has a present tense to it. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Someday we'll get our glorified body, go to heaven, and it'll all be a done deal. And we're waiting for that day. But even now, even now we're living out our salvation. We're living out our identity in Christ. And we're living in the power of the resurrection. And those are the realities that are going on in our life. To us who are being saved, we are always being renewed in our minds and learning to walk in the Spirit. One of the things about Christianity that sets it apart, and I've, I've talked about this so many times, I'm sure, but it's the reality that, that Christianity really isn't a religion. It is a relationship. It is a personal relationship, as cliche as that sounds. You can't lose sight of that. Christianity is a personal relationship with our Creator. It is not just a study of a God that is distant and removed from our life. Christianity is the personal relationship that powerfully transforms us. And when we are saved, Christ comes in and just constantly transforms us and constantly grows himself within us and constantly uh, allows us to look more and more like him. And someone like Mark can become saved and 30 years later look nothing like his Savior. Because why? Because the power of the gospel was not working in his life. He was not setting his mind on the Spirit, but he set his mind on the ways of this world and he looked just like what he focused on. Here is today's big idea that we all need to know about the power of the gospel is the power of the gospel can be evidenced in our life. The gospel is incredibly powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And we looked at three verses that, that just pointed out the power of the gospel. And yet what you need to know is that the, that the Christianity is so personal that it's the power of God evidenced in your life, in my life. People can look at us. They can see the death, the burial, the resurrection, even the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended. And you know what it tells us in Ephesians 2? Where are we today? We are seated with the Father in the heavenlies. So every part, the death, the burial, the resurrection, even the ascension is, uh, is, is reflected in your relationship and my relationship with Christ. What I want to do today is I want to look at one man individual, one man, uh, one individual, one man who really will show us the evidence of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and that's Paul. And all three of those verses we just read about the power of the gospel were all penned by the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's story is incredibly powerful to this end. He had a life that was radically transformed by the gospel. In fact, if anyone understood the power of the gospel, Paul understood it. There was probably no greater enemy to Christ and the gospel than the apostle Paul in his day. No greater enemy. 
than Paul. He was certainly opposed. And that's such a fascinating thing about the life of Paul. So let me set the stage a little bit and we'll pick up Paul's story in Acts chapter 8. And I'll just give you a little background on Paul and then we'll get into three ways that we see the gospel evidenced in his life. But in Acts chapter 8, what happened in Acts chapter 7 is a man named Stephen is preaching the gospel and the Jewish religious leaders like Paul, he's one of them, they don't like what Stephen is preaching and Stephen is stoned and he's executed. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and it says, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen. And then it says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We are about a year removed from the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. About a year removed. It's only been a year. And here's Paul, violently opposed to the gospel, violently opposed to the message of Christ and to Christ himself. And so it says he ravaged the church. He is filled with extreme hate towards his fellow Jews. But then the amazing thing happens in Acts chapter 9 and that Paul has this incredible conversion. He's ravaging the church. And then overnight, out of the blue, Paul's going to have this conversion, this miraculous conversion that is going to change really uh, the, the next 2,000 years here uh, in this world. Acts chapter 9, in fact, here's what it says in Acts 9.4. Uh, Paul, he's, he's walking on the road to Damascus. He's got letters there to go arrest more people and imprison them. Uh, and basically it says that on the way there, God struck him down with a bright light. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do to do what you are to do. And I think we need to read that with that comment there. I don't know that I always do that. And he said, who are you, Lord? It's like, Lord? <laughs> is that you? <laughs> it can't be you. And, and yes, it is. And uh, immediately, Paul uh, responds to the gospel. He makes a sudden U-turn in his life. He begins following Christ. And 2,000 years plus billions of followers later, Christianity has exploded. And the rest, we would say, is history. And we talk about Christianity being a personal relationship. There is nothing more personal than what Paul experienced there, right? A personal encounter, a personal conversation, a personal reprimand, a personal invitation. And Paul jumps on board. And so I want to look at Paul's life and I want us to see three evidences of the power of the gospel that I believe we can all relate to in our own life, that we can all show an evidence for the world to see that will really impact the spread of the gospel just as it did with Paul, it can likewise with us. Again, the power of the gospel can be evidenced in our life, just know that. We have the ability to do that. And so the evidence of the gospel, three different ways it's evidenced in the life of the Apostle Paul. And here's the first way, simply this, God's love is greater than our hate. God's love is greater than our hate. And you want to contrast, the first thing to contrast is contrast the hatred that Paul had versus the love that God has. And there is a great contrast here. Paul, incredibly zealous for God, incredibly hateful towards his fellow Jews. 
And God is going to strike him down. We read earlier in Acts 8.3 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women. He didn't make it, didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. If you believed in Christ, if you believed in Jesus, you were going to jail. And that was that. Later in Acts 26, Paul is arrested. So after his conversion years later, he's arrested. And he's, he's standing before King Agrippa. And he was arrested for doing what Stephen did, preaching the gospel. And so here is his defense before King Agrippa. Here is Paul, in his own words, describing himself before he was saved. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so here is Paul, and we see this incredible anger, this, this fury that he had. We often ask, did Paul ever murder anyone? Well, Paul did it diplomatically according to the law. Paul brought them in, imprisoned them, and then he cast the vote to have them murdered. That's the way he did it. And yet he wasn't quite so diplomatic and quite so by the book because what does he try to do? He tried to get them to blaspheme, it said. He tried to, he tried to entrap them to blaspheme God. I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating. Anyway, here's the first reality check we should note this morning. It's simply this. Hate can blind us to the truth. Just know that hate can blind us to the truth. Why did Paul have a hard time seeing the truth? Because he was filled with such hate. Note again, Paul was trying to set people up. He was trying to get people to blaspheme God, which tells us this, they were not blaspheming God. These people were not blaspheming God. They were exalting and glorifying God and exalting and glorifying the Son at the exact same time. They were telling the whole of the Jewish story, which glorified God and exalted the Son. The Old Testament Jewish story pointed to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets all pointed to Jesus. Jesus' own life and death verified that he was who he said he was. Paul's problem was he was simply spiritually blind. Maybe you can think of someone you know that is just so filled with hate they're blind. They can't see the truth. You try to talk to them about Christ and they just can't see it. They are so filled with hate. Maybe they went through a painful experience. Maybe they even blame God. There are people that go through hard things in life and they blame God and they have such hatred towards God they just can't see the truth of His love. How sad, but how real that can be. Maybe we ourselves are in some way personally blinded by hate. Maybe someone has hurt us or wronged us and we have, we have hatred and harbor hard feelings in our heart that just blind us. Maybe they have changed. Maybe they've asked for forgiveness. Maybe they haven't changed. And, but we're so blind because of our hatred that we can't see how much God loves them, how much God has forgiven them, how God wants us to reach out and forgive them. We just can't see it because we just have so much hate. We can't see the love of God. We can't pass on the love of God. Hate can blind us to the truth. I have good news for you today, and it's simply this, that God's love is greater than our hate, that God's love can overcome our hate if we allow it to. I mean, just look at the life of, of Saul. Saul became Paul. 
Think about that. Saul was converted. Saul's eyes were opened. You, 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 you know 1 Corinthians 13 is, is, is called what? It's called the great love chapter. Probably the greatest chapter on love in the Bible. Who wrote that? Paul, who was so filled with hate, went on to write the greatest love treatise in the Bible. I find it ironic, though, when I look at Paul's life, how God works. I think here is Paul on, the, on his way to Damascus. He's struck down by a blinding light. Here's what it says in Psalms 9. I find this fascinating how God works here. Um, uh, I don't have it on the screen. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And I find it amazing that here is Paul who is, who is both blinded at the same time and his eyes are open simultaneously. It's like he's blinded physically, but his eyes are open spiritually. And I think there's a really subtle truth in there that sometimes what we see physically can blind us spiritually. Sometimes what we see physically can blind us spiritually. This happens in our life. It happens all of the time. We are limited in life because the Bible says that today we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And sometimes what we see is limited because of what we see physically. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Again, again in 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The reality is what we see in the physical realm sometimes blinds us to what's going on in the spiritual realm. <clears throat> Case in point to this story. Think about this. How many of the people, how many of the people that Paul was persecuting were praying for his conversion? I wonder how many were praying for his conversion. Probably very few. We know that after Paul is saved, most of them are like, uh, I don't know if I want to be on his mission team. I don't know if I fully buy this. I don't know if I believe this. There's this reality that what they saw physically, the hatred, everything they saw physically, it didn't help them see spiritually what God was doing in the life of Saul who became Paul. And it's true for you and me all the time. We can look at people and think, oh, that person would never because we see things physically and we, we just can't see spiritually what God can do, what the power of the gospel can do in their life. And we can apply that in so many different ways, how what we see physically limits us spiritually. But I think it's true in this story. It's like, it's like praying. It's like we pray, but we never really believe. We pray, but we never really believe because we can never really see with spiritual eyes what possibly could happen in someone's life or even in our own life. Now, there's one other obvious question here, okay? So, um, Paul, God's love is greater than our hate. And so it, it transformed the life of Paul. Why didn't it transform the life of some of these others? Let me give you an example of what I mean here. 1 Timothy 1.12, here's Paul again in his own words, giving his own testimony. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. One who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy. Why? Because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> Paul acted in ignorance. And so God came down and showed him the truth and, and had mercy and grace on Paul. If you read in the book of Acts, you'll find out that Peter, describing the, the very people who were responsible for putting Christ on the cross, the very Jewish religious leaders, 
that put him on the cross <clears throat> and, and, uh, and nailed him there, those exact people, Peter says, they did it in ignorance. They crucified Christ in ignorance. <clears throat> so the question is real, is real simple. Why, if the Jewish religious leaders crucified Christ in ignorance, why didn't God's love overpower them? And why, here's Paul who acted in ignorance, and the love of God overpowered Paul. Why? <clears throat> it's real simple. Paul, when he's on the road to Damascus, when he was struck down by that bright light, Paul saw the glory of God. He saw the very essence of God. He saw the essence of God, which is his glory and his goodness, his love and his light. That's the essence of who God is. When Paul saw the essence of God, Paul humbled himself and responded and, and said, hey, yeah, I believe. Did the other religious leaders ever have that, that opportunity? Because here, here's the key, okay? Paul may have acted in ignorance, and he may have been given grace, but he still had to respond to the gospel. He still had to believe and receive. And so, when he saw this bright light, when he saw the essence of God, when he saw God for who he really was, when he saw the truth, <clears throat> when God pulled back his blind eyes and showed him the truth, Paul responded and said, oh, yes, I'm all in. The religious leaders who crucified Christ, did they ever have an experience like Paul? Did they ever see the truth the way Paul did? Think they did? John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. For three years, they saw Jesus walk this earth. They saw the glory, the essence of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God, the love and the light of God, and they rejected it when they saw the truth. They didn't respond. So the reality is God's love is greater than our hate. yes. But we still have to respond to that love. <clears throat> we still have to respond to the love, to the truth when we see it. God will not force himself onto us. And so Paul, when he was showed the essence of who God was, he responded affirmatively. The other religious leaders, when they were shown the glory, the essence of God, they did not. Finally, one other verse here that I think is really fascinating. So here's the, the, the effect of of, great, of this grace and this love in Paul's life. We read this last week. For Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And Paul's life is so dramatically transformed by the love of Christ. That the one who went out and actually persecuted the church, the one who went out and, 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 and tried to murder his fellow Jews and had such extreme hatred for them, he is now compelled by love to serve and to suffer for them. Read Romans 9.1, read Romans 10.1, you'll find a, a, a person that had a zeal for God and had a love for his fellow Jews and was willing to suffer for his fellow Jews even eternally. That's, that's how great... The, the love had grabbed a hold of the life of Paul. He was so compelled because God's love is greater than our hate. It will transform us in ways that we could never imagine. Let's look at a second evidence. God's love is greater than our hate. Second evidence, God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than than our sin. Now, here's the reality. When we think of sin in our life, we all struggle, right? 
James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways, starting with the words we use. We stumble in many ways. We struggle with sin. Now, I've stressed in the series again that sin does not define us. It's not who we are. It's not what defines us. Sin is like this parasite that indwells us and attacks us, and we have to fight it off. We have to get our minds set on the spirit, not on the flesh. Thankfully, God's forgiveness his grace is greater than our sin. How much greater is God's grace than our sin? Let's start again with Paul. Here's Paul's testimony on the issue. Paul said this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, what's Paul saying here? Do you get what Paul's saying here? Here's what Paul's saying for, for, for us here. God's grace is greater than the greatest sinner ever. God's grace is greater than the greatest sinner ever. Paul says, I'm the worst of all sinners, and God's grace could even reach me. No one hated like I did, and God's love conquered me. And so that's the reality there. Now, we can debate if Paul was really the worst sinner ever. We can debate that, right? But when you think of who the worst sinners might be, who do you think of? Serial killers? Human traffickers, war criminals like Hitler. The reality is God's grace is greater than any of those sinners. None of those individuals are greater. Their sins are, are not greater than God's forgiveness. Now, we have a Bible in, story in the Old Testament that, that speaks to this with bold clarity. So let's go back to the Old Testament a minute. And let's think about the one named David. And David shows us an interesting thing about sin in our life. It shows us that our sin, juxtaposed and magnified against our personal relationship with Christ, uh, it can seem larger. What I, what I mean by that, uh, well, what, what I mean by that is this, and I don't know if I, I uh, let's read the scriptures and then I'll tell you what I mean. 2 Samuel 11, 1, here's David's story, just five verses. And we're going to see the greatness of God's grace over our sin. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent to Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And we start to see here the fall of David's life. Here's the lesson about David that I think we can all relate to. The closer our walk with God, the greater our sin can seem. Because David was a man after God's own heart, because he had such a personal, intimate relationship with God, his sin here is going to be magnified. Now, it's a great, it's already a great sin. It's a pretty, we're going to see how serious this sin really is. But the reality is if a Billy Graham went out and had some moral failure, it would seem huge compared to somebody else. If you're, you know, you have this really close walk with Christ, our sins are sometimes magnified. But the reality is his sin doesn't need to be magnified by his hero status of who he is. Uh, he really falls into a great descent of sin and all because he can't own it. 
David's problem is real simple. He simply cannot own his sin. So watch the descent in David's life. David avoids the war. That's the first thing. When all the men go out to war, David stays home. He avoids the war basically out of pride. That's the first thing he does. Second thing he does is that he objectifies Bathsheba. He sees Bathsheba and he looks at her as an object, not as a person. And then the third thing he does is that he lusts after her. He wants her. The, the next thing he does is he asks about her. Well, who is she? And then next he sends for her. And then I read some, I read some commentary this week on this next word. I had never noticed this word before. I don't know if you've noticed this next word before. This made me look at the story. It just added another level of how great David's sin was. I never noticed this. You know what happens next? It tells us next that David took her. He looked at her as an object, sent for her, lusted after her, and then he took her. And when you look at that word, and, you, and it says that he took her, see, we often look at the story of David and Bathsheba kind of like there was this kind of this mutual affair, and there's kind of this consensual relationship, and the text actually says, no, he took her. And the most powerful man in Israel took her, and, and was she able to say no? How do you say no to the most powerful man in Israel? And so he took her. And so we know the word for that. We know what the word for that can be. She was taken. She was used, even abused. That's the tragic reality of this story. But the story descends even further from there. Think about it. Because then he covers it up. And the cover-up leads all the way to murder. That is how far David fell into sin. That's how great his sin was. That's how incredible his sin was. Remember this verse when David is anointed king? I shared this some time back. I mentioned this last week, actually. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Clarification, I said last week that the Spirit, you know, I almost, it sounded like the Spirit was in David. The, the Holy Spirit was never in David like he's in you and me. He was on David, upon David. Again, that's kind of unique to the Old Testament even. But in, in the book of John, it says Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. And then Acts chapter 2, it says the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. There is a difference between the Spirit being on you and the Spirit being in you. And so the Spirit's on him. And I think the reason David has the heart of God as he does is because the Spirit of God is on him in a way that he's not on everybody else. And he was on him from that day forward. From the day that he was... So here is one who has the Spirit of God on him. A man for God's own heart and look how far he descended into sin. <clears throat> and the reality is though, that David's sin did not disqualify him. God does not disown him. He did not lose the kingdom or the throne. He didn't. And there is not one of us in this room today that is beyond the grace of God. None of us have committed a sin that is beyond the grace of God. The power of the gospel is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Now, one other thing before we go on here to, to note about this. Here's what we tend to do, I think, sometimes with somebody like a David or a hero of the faith. Well, we come along and we kind of say, well, it was a great sin, but you got to realize the culture of that time was different. I mean, back then it was a different world. And you got to realize David was the king. And so, yeah, David had a lot more pressure and David could get, get away with a lot more. And, and we make excuses for David. You know what? You don't have to make excuses for David's, the greatness of David's. You don't have to. You don't have to make excuses ever for your sin. Because you know why? The reality is, is that when we acknowledge the depth of our sin, what we do is we elevate the status of God's grace. 
But the greater my sin, the greater God's grace is. Now, sure, Paul said, should we continue in sin that God's grace would abound? Well, no, we don't sin just to glorify the grace of God. But the reality is, when we sin, the grace of God is glorified, it's magnified, it's elevated. And you can see that in the story of David here in the Old Testament. That's an incredible reality. God's grace is always greater than our sin. The power of the gospel. God's love is greater than our hate. God's forgiveness is greater than our sin. And here is the third truth this morning, the third evidence we need to see. Simply this, God's truth is greater than our feelings. God's truth is greater than our feelings. And this is a very common battle we go through. This is the battle right here between the battle between our theological beliefs and our emotional feelings. We can say, we can take the Bible and say, well, I believe this. I believe God's love is greater than my hate and His grace is greater than my sin. But what happens when my feelings contradict that? What happens when my feelings are like, well, yeah, but my sin was really bad. I mean, maybe my, maybe my sin does test the limits of God's grace. And the reality is we all, <clears throat> we said earlier, we all stumble in many ways, right? James 2, we all stumble in many ways. And because we stumble in many ways, we struggle in many ways. Because there is sin, this parasite sin in us, this sin produces feelings in us that are, not con- that are contrary to Scripture, contrary to the truth of what the Bible says. Let me give you four, let's walk through four quick examples uh, of this reality of people who had to deal with this truth being greater than their feelings. For instance, Paul, God's truth is greater than his regret. You know, it is wholly entirely possible for the Apostle Paul that when he became saved and went out and preached the gospel, that he went out and he, he, could, have actually, he could have actually gone out and witnessed and saved somebody or ministered with somebody or met a family who he had earlier taken their very relatives and imprisoned them and voted to have them put to death. That is entirely possible. Think about the regret that he would have lived with. Here's Paul again in his own words, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by what? The grace of God, that's the truth. The truth of God is the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul said, we saw today two things. He said, I am the worst of all sinners and I am the least of all saints. Now here's the question. Is that true? How many think that's true? Here's what it is. It's it's true as to how Paul felt. Paul looked in the mirror and said, man, no one is as bad a sinner as me. No one is as undeserving as an, an apostle as I am. So those were the true feelings of Paul. But the truth is, God doesn't have a worse sinner. God doesn't have a least apostle. God doesn't even have a most favorite child. There's no award for Christian of the year. So when I was eight years old, I was in Ohio, and I got to go to Grace Youth Camp. And my first year there, I had a temperature of 104. I was homesick, and I got sick sick. (laughs) I remember that, going to the nurse's station. I go back the next year. We're sitting around the campfire the last night. My um, camp counselor, John Spooner, elbows me and says, you're going to win this. I'm like, going to win what? I won Camper of the Week Award. Wow. And I look at that today, and I think, what are we doing? Camper... Camper of the Week Award? Why are we awarding one person out of, out of all the guys and one person out of the girls to be Camper of the Week? God doesn't do that. There's no awards. There's no better than. There's no worse than. There's no least. We're just all loved the same by the grace of God. God's grace is greater than Paul's 
regret. God's truth is greater than God's regret. Here's a second one. How about David? David, God's truth is greater than his guilt. Just think about the guilt that David lived with. We know his story. Eventually, God sends Nathan to him, a prophet, who sits David down, tells David a story about a great injustice. And David is like angry at this injustice. And then Nathan spins it around and says, yeah, David, you're the person who did that great injustice. That's what you did. And he, he spells it out for him. And David is like, whoa. And David is broken. David has both a broken and contrite heart, his words, not mine. We know that David felt guilt. He felt godly sorrow. We also know that David understood grace. He did. What happens is Bathsheba ended up pregnant. The Bible says the Lord inflicted that child so he became sick. This was clearly a punishment on David. And so David, for seven days, David lays down on the ground, basically for seven days. He's laying on the ground for seven days and won't get up for seven days. Doesn't eat, prays and fasts. Starts to smell pretty bad. Needs a change of clothes. No one can get him up. On the seventh day, the child dies. All the elders come to David, and they're afraid to tell David what happened because if David acted like that when the child was living, what will happen when the child is dead? But David overhears them whispering. David finds out the child has indeed died. Listen to David's response. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, as I said. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped he then went to his own house, and when he, they, when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And all the servants come to David, and they're like, this don't make sense. When the child was living, you acted like he was dead. Now that he's dead, you act like he's alive. And here, here is what David said. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And, and Paul even, or David even says there, maybe he'll be gracious to me in this way. Maybe he'll be gracious and spare the child. He didn't. The minute he was done, what did David do? He got up and worshipped. How could David worship with this huge weight of guilt? Because ta- God's truth is greater than our feelings. God's grace is greater than our sin. And, and David knew that. And Paul knew in his relationship with God that God had forgiven him. There was a punishment, he paid the punishment, and it was done. And we, what we see is we see David immediately moving forward, much like Paul says, we've got to leave behind the things in the past and press forward to what lies ahead. That's exactly what David is doing. He is moving down. Grace moves us forward and we don't dwell on our sin and our guilt and our shame. How about a third example, a third person? And this third example, I don't know that I've ever stopped and really weighed out this person and their thoughts in the Bible. I never looked at their story and thought about, well, wonder what they were feeling. This is a little tougher one to process, but what about, ba- ba- what about, oh, what about Bathsheba? What about Bathsheba? God's truth is greater than her pain. What about Bathsheba? Think about Bathsheba a moment. And the reality is God's truth is greater than the pain that Bathsheba is feeling. We often talk about David's guilt, his grief, his hurt, his contriteness, his brokenness. We dwell on David. What about Bathsheba? First, think about what she went through. So we could say that she may have technically been raped by David. He took her. He took her as an object of his lust. He was the most powerful man in Israel. 
But for Bathsheba, it gets even worse because the most powerful man in Israel, he sends home her husband to cover up this to cover up the sexual tryst and to cover up the pregnancy. And he sends Uriah home from the war. So if he sends Uriah, what did he, what did he tell Bathsheba? Well, you better not, don't say anything to your husband. Play along with this. We're going to cover this up. We're going to cover this up. And you know what the sales pitch is? And, and you know, I know this is true because I've heard this. And a couple of, a, couple of, a megachurch pastor told this to one woman who he had done things to. And he said, you don't want to be responsible to, to, for bringing down an entire ministry, right? This is a great, huge megachurch ministry. You don't want your accusations to bring down this great work of God. Another woman didn't have to be told that. She just felt that. If I come out about my pastor's impropriety, it'll destroy this whole great thing that's going on here. I can't say anything. The most powerful people. And that's exactly where Bathsheba is. Here's this one that she probably respected and admired King David. And now he's like, yeah, you know, you got to play along here. You can't bring down the kingdom. But for Bathsheba, it gets even worse. Think about this. So she's been taken advantage of and sexually abused by the most powerful man in Israel. She ends up pregnant. David sells her on keeping uh, quiet. And then think about this. What happens next? Her husband dies in battle. Now, there's two reasons why her husband died in battle, and she's got this war going on in her mind. Why did Uriah die in battle? Did David kill him to protect himself? Well, could well have been. And I'm sure that's the first thought. David killed. But it gets worse for Bathsheba, because not only did her husband die in battle, here is David who did all this to her, and you know what David's punishment was? Her baby died. He didn't lose the kingdom. He didn't lose the throne. He didn't lose anything, which leads us to the second mindset of where, what happened to her husband Uriah? Did David kill her? Or who's the other person that could have killed Uriah in her mind? <clears throat> Did God kill Uriah to protect the kingdom? Is God protecting David? Did God take Uriah out just to protect <clears throat> David and his throne and his kingdom? All of those things are going through, Uriah, or going through Bathsheba's mind, all because of the selfish choices that King David made. The reality is God's truth is greater than her feelings. The truth of God's love, grace, and compassion is greater than her broken heart. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. <clears throat> Sometimes it is hard to make sense of what's going on in our life and where God is. It's like God did not condone what happened to Bathsheba. Did, God did not condone what David did, he showed grace to David. And he showed grace to Bathsheba. If you know, Bathsheba gives birth eventually to Solomon who goes on to be part of the royal lineage of Christ. So God blessed Bathsheba in her own way. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that leads us to one last person. We need to look at one last example here. There's Paul, there's David, there's Bathsheba. <clears throat> who do you think the last person is I'm going to put on the screen? Yes, us, me. God's truth is greater than my. And, and today, whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever you're going through in your life, just know God's truth is greater. His love and His grace is greater. It is greater than my fear, greater than my doubt, my anxiety, my anger, my insecurity, and you can put anything on that blank that you want. Anything you want to put on that blank, you can. Just know, 
Whatever emotion you're dealing with, whatever you're presently going through, God's truth, what he says is greater than what your enemies say, what your friends say, what your feelings say, what your circumstances say, what even you say to yourself when you look in the mirror. Just know that. Whatever is driving your feelings, and sometimes God doesn't make sense. Sometimes you're just in that that place like Bathsheba when God just does not make sense. And we need to know this when God doesn't make sense is that God's truth is greater than our intellect. God's truth is greater than my reasoning. Psalms 55, and and, and, uh, Evan read it at the start of the service, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't figure out the mind of God and how he's working. We have to, by faith, trust that his grace is greater, that his love is indeed greater. So what do we learn today? What did we learn today? Well, we learned this. The power of the gospel can be evidenced in our life. That the love, the grace, the truth of God can be evidenced in your life and my life. We can be powerful testimonies of the gospel. We learned that God's love is greater than our hate. That sometimes hate can blind us to the truth. And sometimes what we see physically can blind us spiritually. We also learn that God's grace is greater than our sin, and this is that, what? The reality that when we acknowledge the depth of our sin, we elevate the status of God's grace. Don't excuse away your grace. Own it, acknowledge it, and then adore the grace of God. And then finally, we learn that God's truth is greater than our feelings, and this is that age-old battle between our theological beliefs and our emotional feelings. This is the reality. God is indeed greater. Let me leave you with this <coughs> story if I can. Fred Craddock is a lecturer at Phillips Theological Seminary in the United States and he tells of a time he was on a holiday in Tennessee. He and his wife were having dinner at a restaurant when an old man started talking to them, asking them how they were doing and if they were enjoying their holiday. When the old man asked Fred what he did for a living, Fred saw the chance to get rid of him. I'm a preacher. A preacher, that's great. Let me tell you a story about a preacher. The old man sat down at their table and started to speak. As he did, Fred's annoyance was changed to one of profound humility. The old man explained that he was born, and there's a technical term for this, but he didn't know who his dad was. He didn't have a daddy. And there's an ugly name for this. And he said, that's who I am in the literal rather than the figurative sense. He was born without knowing who his father was, And that was a source of great shame in a small town in the early 20th century. One day a new preacher came to the local church. The old man explained that as a youngster he had never gone to church, but one Sunday decided to go. He went uh, went along and to hear the new pastor preach. He was good. The illegitimate boy went back again and then again. In fact, he started attending just about every week. But his shame went with him. This poor, little, illegitimate boy would always arrive late and leave early in order to avoid talking to anyone. But one Sunday, he got so caught up in the sermon that he forgot to leave. Before he knew it, the service was over and the aisles were filling. He rushed to get past people and out the door. But as he did, he felt a heavy hand upon, he felt a heavy hand land upon his shoulder. He turned around to see the preacher, a big, tall man, looking down at him. What's your name, boy? Whose son are you? The little boy died inside. The very thing he wanted to avoid was now here. But before he could say anything, the preacher said, 
I know who you are. I know who your family is. There's a distinct family resemblance. Why, you're the son, you're the son. You're the son of God. The old man sitting at Fred Craddock's table said, you know, mister, those words changed my life. And with that, he got up and left. When the waitress came over and said to, the, said to Fred Craddock and his wife, do you know who that was? No, they replied. That was Ben Hooper, the two-term governor of Tennessee. God's truth is always greater than our feelings. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your love that is greater than our hate, that can transform our hard hearts, that can help us see things that we might not normally see. And thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater than our sin. There is no sin in our life that is greater than, than your grace, that is greater and more powerful than you to forgive. Thank you for that reality. Thank you that we can, just like David, we can just push those things. We, like Paul, can press forward to what lies ahead, knowing that you have a great future for us. And Lord, thank you that your truth is greater than our feelings. Thank you that our identity is found not in how we feel, not in how we behave, but our, our identity is found in the simple fact that we are either in Christ or we're in Adam. And if we're in Christ, then we're in you, and you are our identity you are who we are. Help us every day this week get up, look in the mirror and say, I am a child of the Most High God. The Holy Spirit indwells me. My life is the Holy of Holies and, and Christ Himself lives in me. Thank you for what you've done in our life. Help us live it out every day. Help us this week give evidence to the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>